Reflections on Isaac Dennison's Babette's Feast by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 Here we've had this absolutely stunning film, Babette's Feast, and then to come along afterwards and talk about it seems a very risky and dangerous thing to do. I mean, it's, the, the, one can't expect to do anything but go downhill from the film itself. But there are things in the film that I wanted to, to reflect on because uh, I want to have them sort of more out in the open in a way than maybe the film allows them to be. And, and also because with this film, as with the various pieces of literature that we've been using, uh, we're using this film and these pieces of literature. We have, uh, they have, they've been selected uh, as parables for us. Uh, we, we didn't just sort of uh, gather them up and then discover that they, uh, they meant this or that. Uh, we chose to see them as having certain meanings. These pieces of literature were chosen by and large because they provide us with, independent of the intention of the author, they provide us with what can be seen as parables for the modern conditions, and specifically the modern condition uh, of Western culture and the Christian movement within Western culture. So the culture is undergoing a, a, a shock, and so is the Christian movement. I keep wanting to go back and refer to this passage in uh, the Asleep of Prisoners from Christopher Fry. Uh, as I said, I don't think it's as, as insightful as his later play, which attempts to do the same thing, but there are some passages in it which are just uh, just masterful, and this is one of them. It's when Meadows, we've referred to it so many times already, but it, it's when Meadows, uh, Tim Meadows, who is the Christ figure in that, uh, in that play, uh, begins to talk about his own, uh, his own coming into the world, and it's very much of a, of a, a parable like... Uh, the coming, the, the incarnation, the coming into the world. And, and Meadows says, I got in under the fence. Not a soul at the war office had noticed me being born. I'd only my mother's word for it myself, and she never knew whether it was Monday washing day or Thursday baking day. She only knew it made it hindering awkward. So somehow the coming into the world of this, uh, this uh, Christ figure makes everything hindering awkward. Uh, or as the misfit says in in uh, Flannery O'Connor's The Good Man is Hard to Find, um, he messed everything up. Christ uh, uh, raised the dead and thrown everything off balance, he said. He shouldn't have done it, the misfit said. Thrown everything off. Well, Meadows says that uh, his birth made it hindering awkward. It inter introduces something into the into culture as usual, uh, that has become a great problem, uh, increasingly a great problem. And But the issue I want to face is really the oldest issue uh, in the Christian movement, and it is the question of whether or not this movement uh, it has to do with Monday washing day or Thursday baking day. Monday washing day is a great uh, metaphor for uh, the purification rituals, uh, the, the, the whole religious attempt to avoid contamination with the impure and the secular and the uh, sinful and to uh, constantly apply the ablutions and washings that would uh, cleanse one from, the, from that kind of contact and contamination. 
or the Thursday church, which is the, thir the, the church of the Last Supper, the church of the Eucharistic church, the church that comes together around a shared meal, uh, which is uh, a festive one and a celebrating one. So those are questions that linger for, uh, for Fry as well as for uh, Denison. We have two things before us in a way. We have the film Babette's Feast and the story, short story Babette's Feast. And so I would like to reflect primarily on the short story because uh, almost all of us have seen the film. Fewer of us, I imagine, have read the short story. Uh, th there are places in which uh, the, the film does uh, masterful things that couldn't, could not have been done in the short story and vice versa. Uh, I, I'll call attention to a couple of those that struck me in the film. Uh, but, but most of all, I want to, I want to turn to the text and, um, and, and see some things in it that didn't quite make it onto, onto the film. But what did make it onto the film in a, in a very interesting and I think symbolic way uh, it came at the opening of the film. Uh, later on in the story, we find out that the, uh, the uh, two sisters and the inhabitants of uh, Berlevag, this uh, Norwegian coastal hamlet, uh, live pretty much on, uh, on split cod and uh, ale and bread soup. Uh, but that's tucked away in the body of the story. Uh, but what the director of the film has done is that he has seen immediately uh, what... Uh, Denison is up to with that image and so pretty much has set it at the beginning of the of the story we get this uh, beautiful but bleak setting uh, and the little hamlet there and the very next thing we see is a line on which split cod is hanging to dry now uh, the Christ image is the ichthus the fish Christ is the fish, the ichthus. What we're told is uh, at the center of this story is a small religious party or sect. Uh, the word sect means to section, to uh, divide up. And, of course, that has been the modern history of the Christian movement. And so uh, we get a dried fish that is split, as the opening image in what I think is a parable about uh, the Christian movement. And then we get a bread and ale soup being served very uh, dutifully and um, kindly uh, to the poor and the needy. Uh, but it is, in fact, bread and ale soup. It is not, it is not, uh, it is not the bread and wine of the Eucharistic meal. The dried fish were used in the uh, gospel story in the multiplication uh, and the great fe feasting of the multitude. The dried fish uh, was turned into uh, a feast for everyone. So in a way, we have a parable uh, like that here. But in any case, what I'd like to do now is uh, to go through the story a little bit and see how uh, the author just sets the scene, takes a little time to set the scene. Now, now, now since we've seen the film, most of us, uh, this will be old news to us, except perhaps some of the text will be new, so I'll, I'll refer to it and try to draw out a couple of the Im implications. Uh, the first thing we learn is that uh, at, at the center of the spiritual life of this little hamlet are these two 
now aging sisters, Martine and Philippa, named after Martin Luther and his friend. And in the story it says their father had been a dean and a prophet, the founder of a pious ecclesiastic party or sect. Its members renounced the pleasures of this world, for the earth and all that it held to them was but a kind of illusion. And the true reality was the new Jerusalem towards which they were longing. So it's a sect. And we learn immediately the following. The, the dean's disciples were becoming fewer in number every year, whiter or balder and harder of hearing. They were even becoming somewhat querulous and quarrelsome, so that sad little schisms would arise in the congregation. But they still gathered together to read and interpret the word. Now, the other thing is that once a larger sense of purpose it begins to fade or to wane, uh, the little uh, irritants that are part and parcel of human experience surface and take on much more uh, uh, meaning than they would take on in a situation where a larger shared meaning was, was present. So they begin to surface slowly but surely, and the schisms and quarreling and backbiting and controversy develops. In Girardian terms, as we've talked about, this is a kind of pre-sacrificial, pre early pre-sacrificial system where uh, the, the, uh, the ordinary course, one might say, of this would be that things would get to such a place that, there would, uh, that, that, that the controversy would finally polarize and that one person perhaps would be regarded as the troublemaker uh, the scarlet letter, uh, the heretic, and that person would be excommunicated. Or it would split like a cell splits, and, this, and the sectarian impulse would have conquered once again. And uh, the, two, the two smaller uh, sects would have split off, defining themselves vis-a-vis -vis one another, uh, and the whole process would then have to take place uh, again uh, in two separate locales. That's the sacrificial uh, course that would be run. The other alternative is a sacramental one. Of course, that's what this story is about. So it's a parable of the church, and so and we see the church in uh, a church in which fewer show up every year, and the ones who do are whiter or balder and harder of hearing uh, than they had been before. We don't learn in the story until later on uh, that the dean's favorite hymn uh, was the one that is sung at the very beginning of the film, or almost at the very beginning of the film. We see the small group of uh, the dean's uh, remaining disciples singing this, film, this, uh, this hymn, and uh, it's translated in the English uh, subtitles in the film. It's translated slightly differently than it is in the text, but, but by and large it goes this way. Jerusalem, my heart's true home, your name is forever dear to me. Your kindness is second to none. You keep us clothed and fed. Never would you give a stone to a child who begs for bread. Announcing musically uh, the theme of, the, uh, of, the, of both the short story and the film, which is that everything is going to be assessed 
uh, through the metaphor of food. And so far we have a very, very sparse and, and uh, uninteresting food uh, arrayed before us. Beer and ale soup, excuse me, ale and bread soup, split cod, dried split cod, and simple glasses of water. And the story then pauses to go into, as does the film, to, to take a look at the two loves, uh, the, the loves respectively of the two sisters, the two daughters of the, of the dean who started this religious uh, sect. And the dean is now long dead, and uh, the daughters are getting on in years. But we're, there's now a flashback, and we go back to visit uh, the, the, the uh, title of the section in the short story, two sections. One is uh, Martin's lover, and the other is Philippa's lover. It, uh, it's, uh, these are brief encounters with uh, striking figures that come to play a later part in the story. And the first is uh, Lorenz Lovenheim, who is a, who's a military cadet, disciplined by his father for uh, being uh, reckless and irresponsible sent to the coast to spend a few months with his aristocratic aunt. He takes the horse ride over to the little hamlet, and he sees Martine in the marketplace, and he is struck. Very profound moment for him. In, in the story, it says, In the Lovenheim family, there had existed a legend to the effect that long ago a gentleman of the name had married a Hulda, a female mountain spirit of Norway who is so fair that the air around her shines and quivers. Since then, from time to time, members of the family had been second-sighted. Young Lawrence, till now, had not been aware of any particular spiritual gift in his own nature. But at this one moment, there rose before his eyes a sudden, mighty vision of a higher and purer life. This is, the, this is what Charles Williams calls the Beatrician moment. So he got admission to the dean's uh, sessions with his community. Uh, but the story says he was amazed and shocked by the fact that he could find nothing to say and no inspiration in the glass of water before him. And then we have a, the, the, a major quote from the dean that we must remember. It's very, very significant here. The dean says, Mercy and truth, dear brethren, have met together. Righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. So we get the impression that Lovenheim sat through that and similar kinds of uh, insights on a number of occasions without uh, quite getting it, pondering all the while how he might uh, say something to uh, Martine that expressed what was happening inside him. But he finally couldn't do it, and he tears himself away when, he is, when his... Uh, uh, days of punishment on the coast are over and he goes back to his military detachment and he bids Martin goodbye and says what he's learned there is that fate, fate is difficult and that some things in life are impossible and he rides away. Very interesting though that he not only leaves Martin in the story but he, in a sense, sets his, his heels against the mystery that he stumbled upon by stumbling upon her. When he goes back to his garrison, 
the story says this. Seen from the officer's mess, notice how everything is seen from the point of view of the meal. Seen from the officer's mess, and so to say, through its eyes, it was a pitiful business. How had it come to pass that a lieutenant of the hussars had let himself be defeated and frustrated by a set of long-faced sectarians in the bare-floored rooms of an old dean's house. And uh, we keep returning to this Sebastian Moore insight that sin is seeing my life through other people's eyes. He's had this unique and profound experience. And there are a thousand ways of, of, uh, of... failing to live up to it, and this is one of them, uh, to, go, to go and look at it through somebody else's eyes. And when you look at it through the eyes of the raucous crowd in the, in the military garrison, it looked like a sorry business. And the story goes on, he did not want to be a dreamer. He wanted to be like his fellow officers. Now, I'm going to go light on the Girardian reading of this, uh, but there's a very strong mimetic quality to this. Something profoundly unique had had happened to him, and uh, now he is falling back into some kind of mimetic situation, wanting to be like his fellow officers. So he concentrated on his career, and the day was to come when he was to cut a brilliant figure in a brilliant world. Uh, his career. The word career is, it, it, itself is a mimetic term, I would argue, is a mimetic term. When somebody, uh, I mean, you have to watch out because you can use these, but, uh, but in general, I would say, uh, discussions about career are discussions that have to do with a mimetic operation. Uh, a career is something that somebody else is looking at. A life is something that I'm living. But a career is something that's out there uh, being scrutinized by the rest of my fellows, see, and myself through their eyes. So, notice it says, the day would come when he was to cut a brilliant figure in a brilliant world. Now, this is what we mean by the mimetic uh, thing that takes over. One begins to see one's life through other people's eyes. And that's all we hear of him for some time. Uh, but we know where he's headed straight to the top. Philippa's lover comes next, and this is an even more distinguished figure, uh, a slightly older man who is now uh, the world-famous opera singer from Paris, Achille Papin, who uh, has gone to the Norwegian coast to rest uh, after a European, whirlwind European tour. Sitting on the the, uh, uh, coast one day, he hears the church... uh, gather and the singing begin and he's struck by the voice of one particular uh, young woman and it of course is Philippa and he comes in the church in the in the uh, film it's nice uh, he walks in the church and immediately makes the sign of the cross uh, in- indicating part of what's going on here but the, in the story it says then in a single moment when he heard Philippa sing then in a single moment he knew and understood all like Lauren's Lovenheim, he had had a vision. So he offers to give the, her uh, uh, music, uh, lesson, singing lessons because he understands that she could be the great uh, opera singer of her time. 
For a moment, he forgot himself. For when the dean asked whether he was a Roman Catholic, he answered according to the truth. And the old clergyman, who had never seen a live Roman Catholic, grew a little pale. Slight implication here that he may have seen a dead one or two. Uh, the dean, however, the, by the way, the dean is regarded as an absolutely uh, flattering light, more, even more so in the story than in the film, but in the film as well. Uh, the dean consented to this, despite this man's uh, 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 religious uh, background. The dean remarked to his daughter, God's paths run across the sea in the snowy mountains, where man's eye sees no track. So this is his faith, that somehow God works in mysterious ways. We can't expect to anticipate them. And this, he thinks, well, this is just one of the mysterious ways. Pepin dreams of greatness for Philippa. And the epitome, this comes out better in the story than the film, the epitome of that greatness he understands. He, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a romantic, of course, and he begins these, to, to, to romanticize what it's going to be like when she finally becomes famous. And he thinks, he, he thinks of what the epitome would be, the absolute summit of this great career that he sees in front of her. What would it be? And it's this. When she left the grand opera upon her master's arm, the crowd would unharness her horses and themselves draw her to the Café Anglais where the magnificent supper awaited her. So the, the culmination of her artistic career would be to have laid before her the elaborate meal from the Café Anglais. He assigns her the role of Zerlina and himself the role of Don Giovanni and Don Giovanni, and uh, they sing the, the seduction duet. And in it, he's so carried away that he kisses her. It's funny in the story because later on in the story, he can't quite remember whether he kissed her or not. He was so carried away. Uh, and she goes to her father and says the lessons must be ended. The dean ended the lessons, but he commented to his daughter in doing so, God's paths run across the rivers, my child. And, and in, in symbolic uh, uh, echo of that, uh, Pepin sails away. You see. God's paths uh, can cross the waters as well. But the, the lessons are canceled, and uh, Pepin is now back in, in France. You know, all of us have this instinct for knowing when an experience has the capacity for shattering our consensus reality and when it doesn't. And when we instinctively know that an experience has the capacity for shattering our, our, our uh, uh, consensus reality, we, uh, we, uh, we uh, tone it down. We distance ourselves from it. Uh, when Lovenheim leaves Martin, it says that... Uh, Philippa sometimes turned to talk to the handsome, silent young man who had so suddenly made his appearance and so suddenly disappeared again. Her elder sister would then answer her gently with a still, clear face and find other things to discuss. And when uh, Papin left Philippa, Martine such searched her younger sister's face. For a moment, slightly trembling, she too imagined that the Roman Catholic gentleman might have tried to kiss Philippa. She did not imagine 
that her sister might have been surprised and frightened by something in her own nature. Of this visitor from the great world, the sisters spoke but little. They lacked the words with which to discuss him. And f 15 years elapses and Babette uh, comes on the scene, a refugee from history, fleeing uh, one of the many uh, aftershocks of the French Revolution, another, another convulsion of violence in Paris. And uh, she has escaped. And with a letter from Akil Patan, she shows up on their doorstep, falls into their house. The story says, a massive, dark, deadly, pale woman. In the film, she's uh, much more uh, obviously physically attractive at the very beginning. But in the story, the attractiveness comes out later. Um, and she's lost everything. And Papan pleads with the, the sisters to take her in, and they do. But they find out that the civil war raging in France has cost her her husband and her son, and that she has had to escape because she was arrested as a petroles, a and in parentheses we're told, uh, a pe a, the, in the parentheses in the letter from Pepin, he says, a petroles is a word for women who set fire to houses with petroleum. So she has been arrested for throwing the, uh, the French version of the Molotov cocktail, which, by the way, I want to keep in mind as we go through here. In the story it says she appeared to be a beggar, she turned out to be a conqueror. Her mistresses at first had trembled a little, just as the dean had once at the idea of receiving a papist under their roof. But they did not like to worry a hard-tired fellow creature with catechization. The example of a good Lutheran life would be the best means of converting their servant. In this way, Babette's presence in the house became, so to say, a moral spur to its inhabitants. This is not altogether tongue-in-cheek. Uh, the fact is that their example... Uh, is an example for Babette. I don't think this is quite brought out in the film, and it's not really brought out in the, in the short story, but I think it's, I think it's seriously implied. Uh, we must not overlook this. Uh, she may have come as a beggar and uh, become a conqueror, but let's not forget the reciprocal influences going on, which I think must be understood in this story. However, they distrusted Pepin's assertion that she was a cook because they had heard that in France uh, they eat frogs. So they were anxious to instruct her uh, in uh, preparing food. And so they uh, teach her how to cook split cod and uh, ale and bread soup. The, uh, the, the central instruction in both cases is to soak it. <clears throat> and they were, uh, and, and uh, the story says uh, Babette uh, received this instruction with an expressionless face. <laughs> But uh, wonder of wonders, within a week, she could cook those two dishes as well as anybody in Berlevar. <laughs> the story says that to them, luxuries were considered sinful. Now, their own food must be as plain as possible. It was the soup pails and baskets for their poor that mattered. Now, this is, uh, this is a model for Babette, but also 
a uh, partakes of a kind of split between uh, between the spiritual and the material which is a dangerous split if that split is allowed to develop uh, one finds oneself without realizing it in the monday church and not the thursday church and uh, so there is a you know this come we're, we're we're getting this from north this is sort of the serious literary version of lake wobegon <laughs> Uh, for those of you who were uh, Lake Wobegon fans, uh, you know the even the even the Catholic Church in Lake Wobegon was called uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility. <laughs> uh, but there's something here for Babette to learn. Remember, she's a she's a a, a, a Parisian uh, who has experienced the great uh, social life in Paris. In the story, it says the dark Martha came to live in the house of the two fair Marys. Now, that's interesting. You know, Melville uh, rehabilitated uh, uh, Ishmael. Ishmael was the one that was sort of left out of the story, uh, not as important as the other. Uh, but maybe uh, Denison is rehabilitating Martha here, you see, because in the Gospel story, it's Mary who has chosen the best part, and Martha's fussing in the kitchen, you see. But the bad is Martha. Right after... She's referred to as the dark Martha. The next sentence is, the stone which the builders had almost refused had become the headstone of the corner. Now, that's an explicit Christ reference, you see. So she's coming in not only as the dark Martha, but as the Christ figure, as the way the, the, way the countess was in, uh, in Fry's The Darkest Light Enough, the, the spirit of the church. Now, after it says she's the stone which the builders had almost rejected, it says the ladies of the yellow house were the only ones to know that their cornerstone had a mysterious and alarming feature to it, as if it was somehow related to the black stone of Mecca, the Kaaba itself. And there are two aspects of that. First, she was a Roman Catholic, and secondly, she was a revolutionary. She was arrested as a petrolef. So now we're at, that just sets the that just sets the stage. And now the story begins. The story begins uh, <clears throat> with uh, Babette accommodating to the kitchen, really and truly taking over the kitchen. Uh, and here's what it says in one passage: They would find her in the kitchen, her elbows on the table, her temples on her hands, lost in the study of a head, heavy black book which they secretly suspected to be a popish prayer book. <laughs> or she would sit immovable on a three-legged kitchen chair, her strong hands in her lap, her dark eyes wide open, as enigmatical and fatal as a pythia upon her tripod. I want to come back to that. But you see this, she, she's later on, they think she's concocting the witch's sabbath. Just a little aside before we go on with that. It is that um, when it is really doing what it claims to be able to do, the Christian mystery must be able to give uh, coherence and legitimacy to what is experienced in the first instance as a pagan impulse. That she has access to parts of her being uh, that one would have thought were inaccessible to a Christian because the Christian dispensation 
has a way of, 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 of providing a place for all of that. Now, discipline may, may, may play a role in that, but repression does not. See, Discipline leads to a place of freedom, finally. C.S. Lewis says, we want to create a world in which the good can run wild. So discipline is, moves towards freedom. Repression leads towards a situation where the thing that is repressed rises up and takes over. So just a little thing here about the reference here, these pagan references. I think it's appropriate to, to see that, uh, that these two are being included in, the, in, in this mystery that is Babette. What occurred to me here was, uh, was that the that passions are um, are uh, centrifugal, and uh, sometimes too more so than than, than would be uh, than would be considered uh, appropriate. <laughs> so what do you do? What do you, how do you deal with the fact that passions are centrifugal? Well, there are two ways. One is you build a containment for them. And the other is that you set in the middle of them something that is centripetal uh, to the degree that they're centrifugal. And therefore, they, they take on coherence in that whole picture. And I think the latter is, is, uh, is, is the only alternative that really works long term, is to find something at the center in which, in the context of which, those otherwise random and... Uh, and uh, disintegrating passions can take on coherence. And there's a reference, the reason I bring that out is because a reference in the very next sentence to something like that. It says, the sister's looking on, look, peeking into the kitchen and seeing this. At such moments, the sisters realize that Babette was deep and that in the surroundings of her being, there were passions, there were memories and longings of which they knew nothing at all. See? Memory, I think maybe perhaps we could think of memories and longings as being part of this centripetal uh, thing at the center that gives, that somehow uh, allows that whole, all of the emotional life to come into play. Memories and longings. I, so I would, I really want to hang on to these words. I, I, passions, memories, and longings. And this is the recipe for, for some kind of real spiritual depth and vitality, those things. And, of course, those are the things that the two sisters have, have made every effort to avoid. The next thing that is said is, a little cold shiver ran through them, the sisters. In their hearts they thought, perhaps after all she had been a petroles. <laughs> you see? What is a petroles? Someone who destroys that consensus reality, who sets it on fire, and who sh suddenly the little containment is in shambles. And this is why she's, I think, the spirit of the church. Back to the community. Discord, dissension breaks out. They had endeavored, to, the sisters had endeavored to make peace, but they were aware that they had failed. Now, remember, in each story we have encountered, there has, in virtually every story we've looked at over the last few months, there comes a moment when there is an effort made to, uh, you know, pour oil on troubled waters, an effort made that's sincere, 
genuine and that regards itself as being a Christian effort that fails. It's, it's, it's an effort to kind of cover up, uh, smooth over without really dealing with the situation. And it doesn't last. Uh, one, uh, remember the, st- the story in, uh, in uh, Fran- Flannery O'Connor's Revelation uh, where in the doctor's waiting room, uh, chaos is about to break out. And they start talking about the weather, how pleasant the weather was, hoping that maybe we can get on a nice subject and everybody can agree on. And it, uh, and it does nothing to the real tensions in the room. Well, likewise, in all these stories, and here's a situation where the sisters had tried uh, in some straightforward, earnest way, you see, uh, to, to, to heal these factions. But they had failed. It was as if the fine and lovable vigor of their father's personality had been evaporating very slowly. Now, he's been dead, long dead now, you see. And this, again, is the, para- is the paradigm of the, of the whole Christian problem from the very beginning. How does, the sp- how do you, how do you, does, it, does it get passed on when the relevant person is no longer physically there? You know, how does the spirit of the founding figure uh, get passed on to those who knew him not? So that's, the, that's a perennial Christian concern. And they realized that it wasn't happening. And the early church realized it doesn't happen when you simply... It says they continued to meet and, and, uh, and to reflect on the Word, but it doesn't happen when you do that only. Uh, the, the, in the, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, the great, the great, practically the greatest story in the New Testament, next week I think it's something else, but this week I think it's this one, the road to, the road to Emmaus, you see? He appears when, in the breaking of the bread. How do you have access to the, to the spirit of the founder if he's gone? Uh, by going over his words? It doesn't work. What happens in the controversy is this. The story says, The sins of the older brothers and sisters came with late piercing repentance like a toothache. And the sins of others against them came back with bitter resentment, like the poisoning of the blood. The Catholic Church has a sacrament which uh, used to be called penance and is today called reconciliation. Now, great, uh, well, not even great, uh, medium-sized theological mistakes cannot be cured by a change of name, Uh, but a change of name can go an awfully long way. (laughs) And the movement from penance to reconciliation as the name of the sacrament is is a great step forward. You see that? What happens is, what's needed in this situation is reconciliation. And that's, of course, not happening in this community. It's a symptom of, of uh, the absence of, of a shared sacramental experience. We're given in the story and in the film, but I'll go over it again just to uh, in, inflect it a little bit, that we're given the, some examples of what's going on. There were in the congregation two old women who before their conversion had spread slander upon each other and thereby to each other ruined a marriage and an inheritance. Today they could not remember happenings of yesterday or a week ago, but they remembered this 40-year-old wrong and kept going through the ancient accounts. They scowled at each other. There was an older brother who suddenly called to mind how another brother 45 years ago had cheated him in a deal. He had wished to dismiss the matter from his mind, but it stuck there like a deep-seated, festering splinter. 
There was a gray, honest skipper and a furrowed, pious widow who in their young days, while she was the wife of another man, had been sweethearts. Of late each had begun to grieve while shifting the burden of guilt from his own shoulders to those of the other and back again, and to worry about the possible terrible consequences through all eternity to himself, brought upon him by one who had pretended to hold him dear. They grew pale at the meetings in the yellow house and avoided each other's eyes. So much depends on how we use our memory. Uh, do we use member, memory as, a, as members of the Thursday church or as members of the Monday church? They repeated their father's saying, which was, God's paths are running across the salt sea and the snow-clad mountains where man's eye sees no track. And immediately in the story upon repeating that, uh, Babette wins the lottery. And the sisters think to themselves, lotteries are godless business. <laughs> because they, they know they're going to lose her. She'll go back to 10,000 francs she wins. She's going back to Paris for sure. And lotteries are godless things. The, they're, in, in a way, their last best hope for reconciling this community is to have an anniversary celebration on the 15th of December for their, uh, in honor of their father's 100th anniversary. And they quietly hope that Babette will stay long enough to be there with them. In fact, she offers to cook the meal and uh, ask if she can have a free hand in doing so, meaning that she would like to cook a French dinner. Well, uh, they said, well, we had thought about uh, uh, having a cup of coffee afterwards in, in, honor, of, uh, in honor of the festive event. Uh, and the, the idea of a French dinner uh, put them off because they had these visions of uh, frogs and things. And, and, uh, but they consented. And then she said, I would like to pay for it with my own money. And at this, you see, they could, just couldn't uh, have that be. So they absolutely no to that. And here's how the story has it. Babette rose. She took a step forward. There was something formidable on the move, like a wave rising. Had she stepped forth like this, in 1871, to plant a red flag on a barricade? <laughs> and they consented. And it said, their consent in the end completely changed Babette. They saw that as a young woman, she had been beautiful. There comes this moment when she sees the opportunity to perform her art, and she will not let it pass her by. And when she gets the consent, suddenly she's alive in a way they hadn't seen before. Awesomely so, as a matter of fact. 